0: Psalm 115, I'll read it entirely. and invite you to follow along as I read. When I'm done, I'll say something like, this is God's word. Join me to give thanks to God by saying, thanks be to God. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Psalm 115 is a manifesto against our natural human condition. Our natural human condition stems all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's now our nature to kick God off the throne of our hearts and replace him with something else. This natural condition expresses itself in many ways. I want to talk about two ways it expresses itself that relate to Psalm 115. Our natural human condition expresses itself in that we are now curved in on ourselves and our hearts are factories of idols. We're curved in on ourselves. The Latin phrase is incurvatus in se, as Augustine would say it. Think of it like this. I got the chance to go to the Sistine Chapel last year. uh, And if you've ever been there or seen pictures, the art in the Sistine Chapel, done by Michelangelo, is all on the ceiling. It's really high up, all on this big vaulted ceiling. So if you want to look at it, you have to kind of strain your neck and look up the whole time. Now, what they could do at the Sistine Chapel is install a series of mirrors that would make it much easier for you to enjoy the art. And these mirrors would be pointed up toward the ceiling. Now imagine if they installed these mirrors, but instead of being pointed up, these mirrors were curved in on themselves. They'd be pretty pointless, wouldn't they? They wouldn't be doing their jobs. That's sort of like how you and I are in our natural human condition. But it's not just that that Psalm 115 speaks against. It's also our natural human condition for our hearts to be a factory of idols. That's an image coined originally by John Calvin. Uh, This means that our hearts constantly find new things to worship and love and to devote to instead of God. But it's not just that. The factory works in other ways too. This factory doesn't just make new gods to worship. This factory attempts to remake the actual God in our own image. And this factory is open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Psalm 115 is a manifesto against our human condition. Psalm 115 says, no more curving in, we are looking up. It says, no more gods of our own making, we're trusting God and God alone. Psalm 115, if you notice, it's a prayer of people who have had their eyes opened The people who pray this prayer have had their eyes opened that trusting in yourself is a lie. That trusting in anything besides God is a lie. That neither of those paths delivers on on what they promise. The people who pray this have had their eyes opened to the unrivaled beauty and power and love of the one true God. And so, with this new sight, they now have a new desire. No longer for themselves to be honored. No longer to trust anything besides God and God alone. Psalm 115 is the prayer of those who have had their eyes opened. But it's not just that. It's the prayer of those who have had their eyes opened and who know that their condition still affects them. Psalm 115 is a humble prayer. You might think of it like this. The people who pray Psalm 115 have gone to the doctor and they've been cured of their disease but they still recognize that symptoms of their disease still affect them. So they pray against those things. So it's my prayer for us this morning that we would join the congregation of Psalm 115, that our eyes would be opened to see the lies that we believe, eyes open to the truth about God's unrivaled beauty and greatness and power and love, and that thereby our hearts would be rewired that we would want God to be honored, not ourselves, that we would want to trust God and not anything else. I think if we could sum up Psalm 115 in just one sentence of a prayer, it would lead us to pray this. You'll find this printed on the back of your bulletin. God, glorify your name through me by smashing my pride, toppling my idols, and raising in me a trust in and praise for you. That's the process we're gonna follow this morning as we walk through Psalm 115. We'll start, God, smash my pride, looking just at verse one. And you'll notice that this Psalm starts emphatically negative. Not to us, not to us. The people who pray this, they don't want any glory going to them. They don't want recognition. They don't want renown. They don't want reputation. They are praying that the Lord would literally keep these things away from them. I was thinking about this, and to me, everything inside of you and everything around you would lead you to say, this prayer of Psalm 115 verse 1 is wrong. It's oppressive, right? Everything in you, everything around you tells you to keep yourself at the center. Everything in you, everything around you tells you to follow your heart, to do it your way, to discover your truth, to pursue your self-esteem. Everything in you, everything around you tells you to say you're enough, that you can do anything, you can know anything, you can control anything if you just work hard enough and you believe in yourself. Everything in you, everything around you, from Disney to Frank Sinatra to Taylor Swift. So this prayer, don't give me glory, that doesn't just go against the grain, it goes against a tsunami. So why on earth would anyone pray this way? Well, I think we can get some help if we look at the historical background of this psalm. You know, the Israelites would actually often sing this psalm during the Passover celebration. Don't know how much you know about the Passover, but I'll remind you, the Passover commemorates what happened to Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt. It was right before the 10th and final plague. The tenth and final plague would be the death of the firstborn in each each household, both Egyptian and Israelite. And before God tells them about this plague, he tells them there's a way for you guys to be passed over. And he doesn't say, you know, I'll look at each house and I'll see if anybody in that house has lived a decent life and then I'll pass them over. Nope, that's not how it worked. He doesn't say, I'll look into each house and I'll see if anybody's good deeds have outweighed their bad deeds and then I'll pass them over. Nope, that's not how it works. No, the only way that, that could, they could be passed over isn't if God looked at them, how worthy they are, it's if God would look at the blood of the lamb, how worthy the substitute is. The only way they could be passed over isn't if they were worthy, they could never be, it was if the substitute was worthy. So you see, it's, it's not just self-abasement that makes people pray like Psalm 115 verse one. It's not just that these people are saying, oh, we're so awful, we're so awful, we shouldn't receive any glory they would still be preoccupied with themselves. It's not just self-abasement, it's displacement. They don't just pray negatively, God don't give us glory. Notice they pray positively, God give yourself glory. In other words, they're convinced of how unworthy they are by how worthy he is. When they survey the blood of the lamb, How could they say it was their own steadfast love and faithfulness that saved them? And friend, how much more for you? When you survey the wondrous cross on which the Lamb of God died, how much more should you pour contempt on all of your pride? How could you say it was your steadfast love and faithfulness that saved you and not God's? The only way that God can pass over you and save you, friends, isn't, isn't by how worthy you are, but by how worthy the substitute is. When you realize this, how could you, how could you take any of the credit for yourself? I believe it was Jonathan Edwards who said that the only thing that you and I contributed to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. But even more than that, when you realize this, that it wasn't your own worthiness, but the worthiness of Christ on the cross, when you realize this, not only you can't take any glory, if you truly believe this, you won't want to take any of the glory. You see the slight difference in that? Your pride will be displaced with praise. Because if you really believe that it was God alone who saved you, if you believe that, then your highest desire will be that God alone receives glory. Now, that's why anyone would ever want to pray this way, like Psalm 115, verse 1. But let's say you believe this, okay? And I assume most of you in this room do. Let's say if you believe this, why do you still need this prayer? Why do you still need to pray a prayer like Psalm 115, verse 1? Well, let's return to the analogy earlier. If you have been saved or cured, then this prayer, God, don't glorify me, glorify yourself. This prayer is like medicine that you still continue to take to fight against the traces of disease in your system. Because, friends, I know this might not be true about you, but believe it or not, there are Christians out there who still deal with self-centeredness and pride. No, it's not true about you. We see this at play in the Israelites. Go back to the chapter we referred to last week, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. It's after the Passover. Deuteronomy 8 is after the Exodus. It's after the 40 years in the wilderness, right? God has already saved them. Right now in Deuteronomy 8, God warns them. He says, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Oh, friend, you and I need that warning. Because something happens. And when you've been a Christian for a long time, when you know the gospel in and out, when you've heard the message of Jesus Christ lived, uh, crucified, buried, and risen again, when you've heard that time and again, you've been to church for a long time, you've read the Bible a lot, something happens to you when you get familiar with all of this. Your heart goes back to its default factory settings. Your heart slips back into a self-righteousness. You've been a Christian for a while, you've become familiar, and all of a sudden you look at yourself and you look at the world and you join the Pharisee in Luke 18 and say, thank God I'm not like those people. Default factory settings. You can develop, you become familiar, you develop a self-dependence. You begin to rely on your religion rather than your God. Rely first on your efforts rather than first on your God and his grace become familiar with this, you develop a self-aggrandizement, meaning you become familiar and all of a sudden your activity about God, your activity for God becomes a way for you to be recognized. Don't really care so much about being godly as much as appearing godly. Your godliness becomes a way to feel better about yourself and not an offering of praise to your God. So friend, you and I, we need this prayer of Psalm 115, verse 1. God, don't glorify me, glorify yourself. God, displace self with Christ. Don't let me boast in my righteousness, let me boast in Christ's righteousness. Don't let me find myself in me, help me to find myself in you, in your love, in your faithfulness. God, for what it, when it comes to what I focus on, when it comes to what I want, when it comes to what I pursue, God, take me off the throne of my heart and put yourself there. Oh God, not to us not to us, but to you. your name, give the glory. The prayer continues. See, Psalm 115 strikes against another part of our human condition. It's the condition to make God replacements, the condition to be a factory of idols, to treat good things like God things. So not only does Psalm 115 lead us to pray, God smash my pride and glorify your name, not mine. Psalm 115 would also lead us to pray. God, topple my idols, and you be God to me instead of them. Now, if you look at verse 2, it really marks the situation that's behind this psalm. What's going on is that the people of God are hearing taunts and mocks from the people around them. They sum it up in one question These people are asking, Where is your God? Now, if you think about it, that question could be coming from a couple different places, a couple different motivations. It could be a little jab at their circumstances. As people around them could be seeing what's going on in their own lives. And they, they could ask, you know, hey, guys, look at all that you're going through. Look at your tight finances. Look at all your sicknesses. Look at all your setbacks. Where is your God in all of this? Or it, it might also be a jab at the nature of God himself. Where is your God? It might be them asking, how can you worship something that you don't see? Why would you give your life to something that's invisible? Why would you give up so much good that you can see for what you can't see? So, just here with one simple question in verse 2 Where is your God? You get to see the perspective of idolatry. Idolatry locks you into one time and one place. It's only as good as what you've done for me lately. It prioritizes only what's going on in the here and now. It can't think beyond that. Idolatry, idols, are gods with no mystery. You can fully explain them because you know what they're doing because they're limited to one time and one place. With one simple question, you get to see the perspective of idolatry. Where is your God? The perspective of idolatry locks you only into what you can see. Even though you know, I know you know, what you can see is never the whole story. Where is your God? So, this is the question. They give an answer. And their answer comes in the form of a comparison. They compare God to idols. So they start off by saying, God, our God, they say, taking their stand. He's made us his own. Our God is in the heavens. Our God isn't confined to one time. He's not confined to one place. He's not subject to the decisions and the activities and the opinions of those on earth. He exists above them. At the same time, God does all that he pleases. He exists above us and he intervenes to do all that he pleases among us. God is transcendent and imminent. What a statement we can get lost in verse 2. God, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This tells you that there is nothing that God wants to do that he can't do. There's nothing that God wants to do that he can't do. God's not short on ability. There is nothing too hard for him. This also tells you that there's nothing that God wants to do that he doesn't do. God's not short on consistency. No opinion can stop his purpose. No power can hinder his plan. No king can dethrone him. He always reigns above his creation, and he always does all that he pleases. Now, this means that their taunt falls flat on its face. Because this means that even evil and even apparent defeats for the people of God, even those things don't happen outside of the scope of God's control and God's plan. You see that everywhere in the Bible. I want to point you to at least one place. You can see it in the book of Daniel, chapter 1. You can turn there uh, if you'd like. Daniel, chapter 1. You might remember the setting of Daniel. The book of Daniel records the time after Babylon sieged the city of Jerusalem. Now, it was the Babylonians' custom to take the best and brightest of their conquered territory and fold them into their ranks, hence Daniel and his friends. It was a common belief in that day and age that when one nation defeated another, that proved that the victorious nation's God was stronger than the defeated nation's God. So again, you can see the perspective of idolatry at work, right? That conclusion that one God's greater than another, that's based on one time and one place and only on what they could see. So in the midst of this so-called defeat, in the midst of the difficulties of exile, there's a little nugget at the beginning of the book of Daniel. A little reminder that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Daniel 1, 1 to 2. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That was what they could see. That was what was going on in the here and now. But there is something more going on than that. Look at verse two. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord was still existing above it all, doing all that all that he pleases. This tells you, friends, even when God's people are defeated, even when there are things in your life that you don't understand, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now they compare that to idols. Idols aren't in heaven over all times and all places. Idols are on earth. Idols aren't the maker. They say idols are made. They're the work of human hands, they say in verse 4. They have all the appearances of having senses, but they don't actually have any of them. So you see the difference between the one true God and idols. There's nothing too hard for God. He can do anything he pleases, but idols, idols? Well, they can do nothing at all. Now, you might be thinking, we've explained all this, and you say, Steve, well, this is well and good. Here's the thing, though. No one worships little statues anymore, let alone me. (laughs) Now, friend, if you say that to a large extent, you're right. But let me tell you something. Everyone worships something. You worship something. God knows you do. I think of the Ten Commandments. Remember how God phrased the first commandment. What does he say? He he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You hear a little assumption in there? God understands something about you and me because he made us. He knows that you and I will have some kind of God. Just can't help it. You and I were made to worship. You do it all the time. You just don't realize it. Think back to what we said at the beginning. Your heart is a factory of idols. As an old pastor put it, he says, a God fashioned by your thoughts is no different than a God fashioned by your own hands. You might tell me, I don't worship a little statue. You worship something fashioned by your own thoughts in your heart. You know how you can worship an idol, a God fashioned by your own thoughts? You know how you, can, how you worship an idol instead of worshiping God? You know how you know you can do that? I'll give you three ways. You know you're worshiping an idol when your God says only what you want it to say. You know you're worshiping an idol when your God does only what you want it to do. Says what you want it to say, does what you want it to do. You're not worshiping God, you're worshiping an idol. When your God says only what you want it to say and do, uh, does what you only want it to do, you're choosing verses four through seven over verse three. When you're doing that, you're choosing a God you make over the God who made you. It's easy to prefer a God who's subject to you than you being subject to God. It's easy to prefer a God who's small and under you than the God who is big and above you. So do you see how idolatry and pride go hand in hand? In idolatry, you tell God, you don't get to say what you're like, I do. In idolatry, you tell God, you don't get to set the agenda. I do. Oh, friend, it's so easy to worship a God like that. But a God like that can't save you. How do you know if you're worshiping an idol? How do you know if you're worshiping a a God that's fashioned by your own thoughts and not the actual one true God? I'll give you another way you can know that. Pastor Dane Ortland says this. He says, idolatry is the folly of asking a gift to be a giver. Idolatry is the folly of asking a gift to be a giver. So here's how this might work. That you say that this person or this item or this status is what I need to, to complete me and to give me lasting joy. So that's what I pursue instead of the Lord. You're, when you do that, you're asking a gift to be a giver. I'll give you a couple of examples. In just a couple months, a few weeks, thousands of people will descend upon a municipal parking lot and fill the Cleveland Browns Stadium. And what's going on here is nothing other than a worship event. It's filled with praise. It's filled with ritual. It's filled with liturgy. Football is a gift. It's not a giver. It cannot give you salvation. It can't give you the love and forgiveness and guidance you most deeply need. Treat it like a gift, not a giver. Family is a gift. I can't wait to meet my son. It will be an honor and a joy to hold him to be his dad. But if I'm not careful, I can treat my son like he's a giver and not a gift. I can have these expe- expectations for my son that he can give me the eternal salvation and love and meaning and forgiveness and guidance that I most deeply need. Those expectations would crush him. He can't bear them. So, friends, fill in the blank. What's a gift? that you expect to be a giver. Is it leisure and entertainment? Is it work and money? Is it sex and pleasure? Is it beauty and fame? Is it intelligence and athleticism? Is it country and politics? These are gifts. They're not the giver. They can't give you what God alone can. And if you treat them like a giver, you'll end up like an idol. Look at verse eight, dead and powerless. You know how you can tell you're worshiping an idol instead of the one true God? how you're worshiping uh, a God fashioned by your own thoughts rather than the one true God? I'll give you a last way. You can tell if you've lost your senses toward God, right? If you've become mute toward God, that you no longer speak to him in prayer, that you've become deaf and blind to the word of God, right? Verse eight says you become like what you worship, right? Idols are mute and blind and deaf. So when you trust them, you become mute and blind and deaf toward God. So what happened to the Israelites? Remember, Moses was delayed on the mountain, Mount Sinai, 40 days up there, and God giving him the law. So he was delayed. The Israelites are down at the uh, edge of the mountain, and they tell Aaron, hey, Aaron, why don't you make a god for us? And Aaron obliges. And Aaron even goes a step farther. He, so he fashions a golden calf, Right? And Aaron says, this is Yahweh. This is the Lord who delivered you. What's Aaron doing? Aaron is redefining God in his, in his own way for himself. And when God brings this to Moses' attention, God says something interesting. God says, I have seen this people, and it is a stiff-necked people. I'm not an expert in bovine creatures. But it would seem that cows don't have the easiest time looking up. They have stiff necks. So the Israelites' idolatry made them just like their idol. It prevented them from looking up to God and listening. They became just like what they worshipped. Worshipping an idol will make you mute toward God like your idol is. I don't know if you find this about yourself. When I, for for me, when I am too preoccupied with just noise, I listen to too much sports talk radio. I watch too much TV. I'm on online too much. You know what ends up happening to me? I end up going getting prayerless. <laughs> I, I find that I just don't want to pray or I just don't pray. I become mute like the idols I'm worshiping. If you find that you don't really pay attention to the Bible, that you don't have a deep hunger to read and reflect, that you don't long to hear God in His Word could it be because you're worshiping idols? <laughs> could it be because your heart is actually taken up more with other things? Nah, no, yeah, I hear people say, you tell yourself, I'm just so busy. You know, I, I never have time to read. Well, yeah, I get that people are busy. There are unique seasons of that. I'm not saying that you need to do a full-on academic Bible study every day. I'm just talking about a desire to pursue God and his word. Is that there? And it could be if it's not there, it's not because you're too busy. If it's not there, it could be Because you've made a God out of your productivity. And it's become more important to you to worship productivity than it is to worship the actual God. Fill in the blank there. And there's something ironic that happens that ironically, idolatry doesn't have the power to save you, but idolatry does have the power to make you mute, deaf, and blind to God. Oh, friends, amazingly enough. Psalm 115, verses 2 through 8. You know who they're for? They're for the people of God. You and I still need this. You really think you're incapable of fashioning a God of your own thoughts? You really think you're incapable of treating a gift like a giver? You really think you're incapable of being mute and deaf and blind to God? Oh, let Psalm 115 lead you to pray. God, show me my idols. Show me when I'm doing this and topple them. Reclaim the place in my heart. Well, friends, if your heart is like a garden, Then it's not enough to pull the weeds of pride and idolatry. You also need to plant the flowers of trust and praise. This is our last point. Those praying this psalm have laid out the truth that God alone deserves glory, both over themselves and over idols. And starting in verse 9, they no longer really address the Lord. They start to address themselves. They're trying to convince themselves. And they leave no one unaddressed. From They go from Israel to the house of Aaron, that would be the priests, the leaders, to all who fear God. This would apply to even those who aren't physically from Israel. They tell everybody to trust in the Lord, not yourself, not in idols. Now, they've already done this by establishing God's unrivaled greatness. But now they're trying to convince themselves by establishing God's unrivaled goodness. He, they, they speak of the present, they speak of the past, they speak of the future. Notice they say he is their help and their shield. This is proactive and reactive. He gives them aid and he comes to their defense. He has remembered them. He has proven faithful and loving. Future, I love verse 13. He will bless those who fear him, both the small and the great. So they're convincing themselves. Hey, everybody, we need to trust the Lord and no one else. Why? Why? Because everyone who trusts in themselves and everyone who trusts in idols will be let down. No one, no matter how great or how small, no one who trusts in the Lord will be let down. I've shared this quote before. It just fits here so well. I'm going to share it again. It's from David Foster Wallace talking about how you trust in anything else besides God. You will be let down. He says, if you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your own body and your own beauty and your own sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will never, ever you will, you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If you worship your own intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so on. Everyone who trusts in themselves and idols will be let down. No one who trusts in the Lord will be let down. So my friend, when you feel the deep currents, of pride and idolatry still running within you. Do what the congregation does in Psalm 115. Make a case to yourself. Give yourself reasons to trust the Lord, that he is unrivaled in his greatness and unrivaled in his goodness. You see, if God was only great in power and not good in character, we couldn't trust him to apply his power well. If God was only good in character but not great in power, we wouldn't be able to trust him that he's able to intervene on our behalf. You can trust God for he is both great and good. Make a case to yourself. Along with those in Psalm 115, you know, Charles Spurgeon, the old preacher, reflects on these verses and he says, it's good to exhort those who have faith to have faith. That kind of sounds weird. It kind of sounds inception, right? Dream within a dream, right? Uh, it's good to exhort those who have faith to have faith. It might sound strange, but it's actually all over the Bible. Remember the Apostle John, why he wrote his first letter, 1 John, 1 John 5, 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, i.e., those who already have faith, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's good to exhort those who have faith to have faith. If you trust in Jesus, it's good to exhort yourself, to tell yourself, to make a case to yourself. Keep trusting in Jesus. Why? Well, I've heard it explained like this. Let's say that I was uh, taking a hike and we came to an edge of a cliff. I was with my friend and I started to slip and I even started to fall over the edge of the cliff but my friend threw a rope down and I grabbed it. Now, would it make sense for me to say, well, I grabbed the rope once uh, and now I'm good so I can just let go? No, that's not how it works. That's not how trusting God works either. You grab the rope and you keep holding on to the rope. You don't just say, I'm good after I've done it one time. Trust is active. It's ongoing. It's not just praying a prayer or walking an aisle, filling out a card. It's not just a one-time thing and say, I'm good. You take hold of him and you keep holding on to him. Trust is not just about what you did previously. It's about what you're doing currently. If you trust in Jesus, you need to keep trusting in Jesus. And trust doesn't just look like mental agreement or assent. Look at how the psalm closes. Trust looks like praise and love. The psalm closes by them expressing their confidence in God's goodness to them, for their future, that they determined to praise God for His blessings. They resolve to praise God forever. Just look at the difference between, for example, verse 17 and verse 18. The people who pray Psalm 115, they have this confidence and this resolve that they won't end up dead and silent. They know that they'll end up alive and praising. What I want to tell you is that if they can have this type of confidence, you can have even more. That you won't end up dead and silent, but alive and praising. How can you have that confidence? Well, the God who reigns as king in the heavens, he was pleased to devise a plan before the foundation of the world. A plan for his own son who has always existed by his side to to leave the throne above and come to earth to take on flesh, to have a real mouth and speak, to have real eyes and see, to have real ears and hear, to have a real nose and smell, real hands and touch, real feet and walk. You see, there's no image that you and I can create that can perfectly capture the beauty and glory of God. But Jesus... Jesus is the image who does. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. Jesus says of himself, whoever has seen me has seen the father. He is the mirror who perfectly reflects the father. God was pleased not just to send his son from heaven to earth to take on flesh. God was pleased to deliver his son over to sinful men to be killed. Isaiah 53 says it was the will of God to crush him. This tells you that even the greatest evil in all of human history, the greatest defeat in all of history, even that wasn't outside the scope and control of God's plan. What men meant for evil, God meant for good. Because God's will wasn't to crush his son for his son's own sin, but for ours, for our pride, for our idolatry, and to prove that he accepted his sacrifice. To prove that there is nothing he can't do that he wants to do. To prove that he alone deserves glory for his unrivaled greatness and his unrivaled goodness. God rose his son from the dead. Oh, my friend, isn't the God who comes to rescue you, live for you, die for you, and rise again for you better than a God that you designed for yourself? Amen. Stop trusting yourself. Stop trusting at a God that you've made. Trust God, trust his son, Jesus Christ. And when you do, the beautiful news is very similar to Psalm 115, verse eight. All who trust in Jesus become like Jesus. We're no longer dead, but alive and alive forevermore. This, my friends, is how you can confidently resolve to leave behind your pride, to topple your idols, and to trust and praise your God now and forevermore. Let's pray. Oh God, we are curved in on ourselves And we set up so many false gods in your place. Show us your unrivaled greatness and goodness. Show us this on full display in the gospel. Give us such a clear view. Open our eyes so that it displaces our pride, it topples our idols, and it replaces them with trust and praise for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.